This 30 days of Thanksgiving, I, I should mention that when I came in this morning, we have a group that prays at 8.15, and Pastor Paul Bergman leads that. And some of you know Pastor Paul is our pastor um, emeritus and does visitation and leads the ambassador class. He's 88 years of age and young as can be and was just sharing with us how yesterday it was just so beautiful with that snowfall, wasn't it? And you wake up, and he's talking about how he was looking out the window with just a sense of wonder and awe of the snow, which is laid just so nicely on the branches. And, and yet he had a tinge of guilt as he saw his wife, Dorothea, scooping the snow. Um, <laughs> he actually told us that. It's not my joke. And I really wonder if Dorothea was doing it. No, um, one of the things this Sunday, not only are we recognizing, and I have to tell you, I was moved as um, we responded with such a sense of um, gratefulness for those of you who have served us in the military. You have um, served under great sacrifice, and you have provided, I believe, a place where we can freely worship. Also on Sunday, this Sunday, across the world today, Churches are praying for another group of people. And those are people who live in other lands where they are persecuted for the very faith that they have in God through Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to do is to enter into um, that, that struggle as we would just take a moment and pray for them. And I'm going to ask you to do that quietly. I'm going to ask you, we've been talking about remember and celebrate what God has done. He has provided a place for us to come and worship him. And then he also says, within in this time of thanksgiving, be still and know that I'm God. And to recognize that. And to join in, as Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me. Because he was one who was being persecuted as he shared the gospel. In my struggle, as I even pray for you, to God. So, would you take a moment, and however you want to, just quietly, would you either pray for those who are serving us, or for those who are in a place of persecution, Just lift your heart quietly before him and be still. Thank you, God. We can worship you in so many ways. With drums and guitars, and we can worship you with an organ. We can worship you with young voices, with one who stands here in the worship team who is pregnant. We'll have a new member in our congregation and with those who have served for years and have been seasoned singing of your love. And there are some people, God, the ability to worship means that they hardly have anything that they can give voice to praise. And in some places, if they even do so out loud, they can be so persecuted, and yet they still do. It matters not, God. It matters not the means in which we come to you. What matters is our heart. And so humbly we come and we say, thank you. And be with our brothers and sisters all across this planet who suffer for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to do something, kind of run this by you here for a second, okay? And I'm just, I want you to think for a second, what are the top ten Minnesota events that occur in 2010. If you were to say, you know, there actually is a website that lists the top 10 Minnesota events. Anybody want to venture to guess one of them? Ah, very good. State Fair. Another one. Holly Dazzle. We'll talk about that in a second. Yep. Minnesota Twins opener. 
Um, this isn't on here, but it should be that the Gophers football team won. Um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Summerfest, Bayfront Blues in Duluth, the Grumpy Old Men Festival that some of you wives want to send your um, husbands to, um, St. Paul Winter Carnival, Scandinavian Himmelskunst Festival, in Moorhead. But anyway, I know. And the Holly Dazzle Parade. How about that? Coming up. And here's what it says about it. Celebrating the 19th season, this year's parade will enchant thousands of people with dazzling lights and festive floats. Be prepared to be enchanted. The Holly Dazzle Parade, what's so wonderful about it is it goes by and you're dazzled and you're enchanted and, and then you go home and you go, wasn't that a great experience? Now, I, I bring that up because I think sometimes we're a little too hard on these Pharisees and teachers of law. I think maybe I have been. Because they're really looking at Jesus and they're going, you know, we see all these things that you're dazzling with with our eyes and, and, and we've seen these charlatans before. And so they stand before him and say, you know, the parade's over, but let's see the real stuff. Are you really the guy? Are you the one? And they point out very clearly as we look at this passage, the trouble with miracles. Do you know what the trouble with miracles really is? It's this. They, they don't make you believe. You may experience a physical healing and, and experience relief through it. It, it, it's in the Word of God, it says that ten lepers came and, and they were healed, actually healed by God. And, and, and they left and only one came back, had faith, is what Scripture tells us, to respond to God. But they all experienced this miracle. And, and then you can think of others, like this woman who was ready to be stoned by a group of people because of her life and what she was doing in Jesus in a miraculous way, stops it all and says, those of you without sin, go ahead and you, you throw the first stone, they don't. And he, he picks her up and, and, and in a sense, she's experienced this incredible miracle of intervention and, and her emotional wounds should be healed. And Jesus looks at her and says, guess what? Don't keep looking for what is going to satisfy your soul in the arms of another person. The arms of God have just come around you and loved you in such a way, so now go and sin no more. Have faith. There's all these kind of miracles. And they have the ability to provide this sense of awe and wonder. In fact, we read in chapter 12, verse 23, just this uh, last week or so when we were reading this, it says... That this man who was blind and mute, who had been able to, uh, unable to talk and see, he talks and sees, and all the people, as a result of it, as the parade of miracles went by, were astonished. And it didn't say they put their faith in him. It says, could this be? Could this be the guy? You see, miracles may actually point to the reality of God, but the trouble with miracles is that they don't force one into faith. I had a real aha moment in my own life when I came to realize that. That, that, that miracles, they, they may strengthen your faith, and in fact they should. And when you see God at work, you see the reality of His presence, the manifestation of His Holy Spirit among you, it should create a deeper sense of, of awe that leads to a deeper sense of faith and trust. But here's the problem, the trouble with miracles. is They don't actually make you believe, force you into faith. Matthew makes it really clear as we look at this teaching. 
He doesn't want anyone, I think, to leave this room or throughout history to get this confused. Miracles are wonderful. They're eye-catching. They're awe-inspiring. And they, they may even strengthen your faith, but they no, don't necessarily create faith. For when the parade of miracles goes by and you are dazzled, it doesn't mean that it will move you to a place of depth in belief in God. If we review Matthew, beginning back at chapters 1 through 10, if you, if you were to read through this, the whole purpose of these first 10 chapters is to lay out this incredible teaching of God that reveals through Jesus that He is the Father in flesh, the Word who has come, who not only speaks with authority, but this Word that comes that also demonstrates the presence and reality of the kingdom through the miracles that He does as we look at chapters 8 and 9. So that when we come to chapter 10, this, 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 this God who has come in flesh through Jesus Christ and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit should be so apparent for all that He now at chapter 10 says, now all of us go and do the same. Not only declare the kingdom, not only demonstrate the kingdom, but go out and do the kingdom. Actually do what the the, the rabbi you've seen done and, and begin to be the manifestation of God to every person that you come in contact with. So that at chapter 11, now things change as he's revealed who God is through Jesus Christ. Matthew has for people to make some decisions. Chapter 11 comes and he shows some responses that people have to this revelation of God through Jesus. And he begins in chapter 11 with John the Baptist, which is the, he is the person who actually initiated and, 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 and revealed Jesus to all the people through the baptism. But John, at this point, is beginning to honestly question. He's going, is this the Jesus? In fact, I don't know if this is the Jesus that I thought it was. And, and the whole thing we're looking at is just Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. When Jesus shows up, how do you respond? Is chapter 11. And he had honest doubt. He had honest what I call questions. And the next group had complaining criticism. Here is Jesus. He shows up in a very glad way, and they don't like the glad way that he shows up. But John the Baptist shows up in a sad way. It doesn't matter how God comes. No matter how God comes, they stand around and they criticize, they complain. They don't want it because they don't want to be involved in it. And so that's their reaction. There's a group of people in Corazon and Capernaum and all these cities. And these people in the cities are watching. They're amazed. They're in awe. Here's God in, in flesh standing before them doing incredible miracles. And they are just bedazzled. Enchanted. As they go, wow. And they kind of leave yawning like, that's interesting, and onto their own life indifferently. And then Matthew ends it by saying, and there are some. There are some people whose hearts are in such a place that they are, they're burdened and they're weary. They are understanding in this very humble way that they need God and only God. They need just Jesus. And not anything else you can add to them. But they just need Jesus. And, and these, these weary, burdened, heavy-hearted people who understand their own illness have before them one who can heal them. One who can come before them and can give them the life that they seek after. One who has all that is needed for the humble heart. So now we come to chapter 12, which is this incredible turning point. It is, it is Jesus now beginning to confront those who are confronting him. There is this group who stands outside, not the apathetically indifferent, and not those who are honestly questioning, but specifically those who are coming now with a critical heart and spirit that are beginning to wonder, and not only just wonder, but they're beginning to say, this isn't this, the Jesus. And they see his, his, his Sabbath, and they have questions on the Sabbath, and Jesus goes, it's not really about the Sabbath. You, you don't approach the Sabbath wrong. You, approach, you actually approach my word wrong, he says to these Pharisees. You actually build your life on a wrong approach to the Word, and that also is also going to leave you in a wrong approach to God. 
And you are going to lead a whole lot of people in a wrong approach to God, through your wrong approach of the word. So that eventually, as he shares these things with them, they get a little more hostile, a little more upset. They see a miracle, and now at this time in the miracle, when they should be looking at the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and the, the expression of God in all his totality and wholeness before them, they see this expression of ultimate holiness, and they call it the ultimate expression of evil. He is the prince of demons, and it is by this power he does it. And so now we come to these verses. In verses 38 through 45, Jesus basically comes to the end of the confrontation, and he presents things as clearly as can be presented. And so we come to these verses, and as you look at verse 38, he shares with you the trouble with miracles. These people are asking for documentation. Let's see the evidence. Give us the papers that validate so we can make a decision. And Jesus says, as they come to him in verse 38, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And here's his answer. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. And to establish a second witness, which is a very rabbinic thing to do, he says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment also with this generation and condemn it. For she come, came from the ends of the earth, and, and in your Bible, I'll kind of underline it, she comes from the ends of the earth, this is important later, to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. And then Jesus goes on and adds, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and it takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first, and this is how it will be with this wicked generation. As I go through this message, I don't know if I have a lot of time to get into this last passage, but I, I want you to know that this is repeated in, in Luke as well, and it's repeated there. It's, it's talked about an individual. Here he's talking to them as a group of people, a community of people, and their response. So you, you, you have to remember that Jesus is an itinerant preacher, and so I, I believe when you get a good story, as a, as a person who speaks, when you get, get a good story, you use it a couple times. And when you're an itinerant preacher, you might use it 10, 15, 20 times. And you apply it differently. So that's kind of what's going on here. Let me just end it with this little story about this. So let's look at this. Three, path, three what I call paragraphs, beginning with verse 38. And then another paragraph, verse 39, all the way down to verse 42. And then 43 through 45. 38 is basically a demand. The next paragraph is an answer. And the very last paragraph is a warning. In the very first paragraph, it's a demand, which I would paraphrase as, dazzle me, Jesus. Wow me one more time. And Jesus' answer is what I've captioned, enough is enough. Enough is enough. It's time to decide. 
And then that last part is a warning, which is kind of this idea that empty places get filled. So be careful what you get filled with. And and so that's kind of how it lays out. And so let's look at the very first one. Here they are. They're coming before Jesus. And I said, you know, we're kind of hard on the Pharisees because I think in some ways, if we just kind of pull ourselves back, the evangelical church can very much be like this as well. People who have attended church for a long time, myself included. I like how Jim Peterson in the message paraphrases this verse because I think it captures the essence of their request. He says, Later, a few religion scholars and Pharisees got on him. Teacher, we want to see your credentials. Give us some hard evidence that God is in this. How about a miracle? It's the classic demand that I think we either subtly bring to God or sometimes brazenly require of God. Show me, then I'll believe. I think maybe you're in this, but you need to do one more thing for me, and then I'll make a decision. Prove yourself first, then I'll obey you. Chapter 12, verse 38, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees come to him just that way. They say, show us a sign. And you have to ask yourself, because as I was preparing this and going through this, I, I asked myself, this question just came to mind. What's with this prove us, prove yourself to us again mentality? Think about it. What's, what's with this prove yourself one more time mentality? I mean, haven't they seen enough? How many miracles does a person need before you cash your chips in? I, mean, I, I thought of this, and I, I, seriously, I thought, how many would have a cavalier demanding attitude like this towards your boss? Or to some respected leader, or, or maybe even a, a football coach? Maybe kind of the Randy Moss syndrome. And they won't go there. Anyway... And as I prepared this, I couldn't help be struck with how often I have done this in probably much more subtle ways. Show yourself again, God, to be faithful, and then I'll believe you. And think about it. How many of you are like me where you say, prove yourself, God. In fact, I'm in this difficult time. I'm in this place. If you just provide for me one more time, now I'll really believe. Give me another sign. If you just give me another sign, you know, here we are, we're doing these things, and if you just give us one more sign, let us really know that you're here with us, then we'll really commit ourselves and trust. Just one more time. I don't care what it is, whatever you think that is, just one more thing is what we require of you. That's what he says. How many of you have been waiting to trust God's Spirit, who has been, over the last number of weeks maybe, maybe over the last number of months, and kind of tapping at your heart. And you feel the pressure of his spirit on you. And he's going to say, now, just give me some evidence. When I was younger, I used to say this. I remember, Jesus do something miraculously unexplainable. Something that, you know, I would just be going, wow, that is so only God, that because of that, If you do that, I will just give everything of myself to you. I will fully commit. I'm on board 100%. Anybody ever had that experience? And then as I got older and I began to make commitments, not based on that, but began to just was overwhelmed and knew that what was around me and I should commit, and as I began to do that, I did it more subtly, and I can do it more subtly. You know, God, you've told me this. You've led this way before. I've heard the testimony of how others... Would you just prove yourself one more time? I really will really believe. And all about me was the reality of God in His presence. 
I've heard testimonies, and everywhere were signs pointing to God. And really what's so interesting was the step wasn't mine, it wasn't God's, but it was mine. Can you imagine the Pharisees and, and, this, and these teachers of the law standing before the God of heaven saying, prove yourself? And when do we do it? When he's given us evidence and he's told us what we need to know. Here's the question. Here, here's the question you need to ask yourself from a, from a standpoint of what it means to follow Jesus. Do you see and then believe? Or do you believe and then begin to see? Jesus seems to indicate here's reality. Here's reality. He, he, again, I've said this before, Jesus is not so much into shoulds. That's, that's really more the legalistic approach to faith. Jesus basically stands up and says, here's reality. You choose whether you want to live in it or not. So Jesus stands up and he says the whole group of people, one time in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, here's reality. Blessed. The people are blessed. The people experience God. The people begin to understand God, know his intimacy. And we see his moving in their own lives and see the hand of God at work and the works of God are the kind of people who are, are blessed are those who are what? Pure in heart, for they will what? See God. He's talking about the humble, simple, dependent, hungry faith that says, God, I love you, I trust you, I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to, when I feel the nudge of your spirit, when I hear the, the, the quiet voice in my, in my spirit speaking to me, I'm going to follow you, even into those tough, courageous things, whatever it might mean. It may mean that I have to step up and really stand against someone's anger, but I'm going to do that. God, I'm going to stand and I'm going to do what I need to do in a person's situation here where I, I know I have to speak the truth, but I'm going to do it in a way that's not out of fear, but I'm going to do it out of love. I'm going to figure out how to do this. God, I'm going to live in such a way that I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to look at what I have with my finances and I'm going to say, okay, God, it's a tough time, but I'm going to give back to you to help others because I believe it's important to do that. I am going to give myself to you so that as I step out in faith, I will see you at work. Jesus seems to indicate that's how it happens. And really, it's been my own experience. God speaks, we hear. I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again. I believe the organ, the spiritual organ that is most often accessible to God is the ear, the spiritual ear. You read it throughout Scripture. He doesn't often call us to, to look for things and to see it. And then, oh yeah, I see it. You, know, you see the work of God and see how He moves. That's what Jesus did. And you, we have a great book called Experiencing God. There are some really wonderful truths there. But if you really listen to the Word of God, you see that He calls Abraham. He calls certain people. He speaks. Faith comes by what? Faith comes by hearing. And with faith comes spiritual sight and discernment and understanding. And most often we hear the Spirit, we believe with our spirit, and then with His Spirit, He opens the eyes of our hearts to see the manifestation and work of God. Paul says it in Corinthians to the followers of Jesus this way. 1 Corinthians in verse 12. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Isn't that interesting? It's all about words. And the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are perceived, perceived, discerned only through the Spirit. He basically says we hear the Spirit. When we hear the Spirit, the response should be, according to the call, an obedience of faith and trust. And as we have faith and trust, now we begin to understand. Now we begin to see the things that we've been holding back on. 
Your sight and your perception, your discernment grows through trust in Jesus, is what Matthew seems to be saying here, and not in miracles. We, we have this kind of wrong, often even in the evangelical church. It's so much more easier to live according to principles and guidelines rather than into a relationship where you hear this God and you walk with this God as you begin to know His Word and as you begin to be in community with people and you allow the Spirit of God to richly dwell in your being as you take time to become intimate with Him and you begin to, to hear His voice so that you know when He's speaking to you. And when He speaks to you, you begin to be guided by the very presence of God. And He talks about this. But we sometimes don't understand this because seldom is faith or what I call a trusting, humble, surrendered heart about more knowledge. If I just knew more. Now, knowledge isn't bad. And knowing and understanding God's Word is a wonderfully, incredibly good thing. But the Pharisees had all the knowledge in the world. It didn't register in faith. It's not about more miracles either. A trusting, surrendered, humble heart it's not about seeing more, you know, more miracles. I just saw more. It's not about having more experiences. Hebrews 6 says this to a community of people. He says, you, you have been enlightened. You have actually tasted. You have shared. You experienced the goodness of God. You've actually tasted the Holy Spirit. Not ingested, not taken in, but you've tasted. And you've been in His very presence, yet you still turn away. You do not have faith. And so I just want you to think for a second, where is Jesus prompting your heart? Where is he saying to you, you will not see, you will not understand, you will not discern these things of God till you actually begin to obey and follow and walk in this area with me? It may be that for the very first time in your life, you've never come to a place and you said, you know, I've been wrestling with you or I've been away from you or I've be, this circumstance has brought me to this place and I came to this church maybe a month ago or a year ago and now in this place where I realize what needs to happen now is I don't need more evidence, I don't need more truth, I don't need another sign, what I need is a will. Because we're made with our mind and our body and our emotions and also with a will that has the ability to want and to actually choose to step into obedience, even as hard as that may be. And are you saying, could you be sitting here saying, dazzle me, God. Bring the parade by. And then I'll have faith. And Matthew's saying, and Jesus is saying, it doesn't generate it. And Jesus answers them quite directly. And these are not um, some naive, what I call town folk, but these are what are called seasoned veterans of the faith that he's speaking to. Okay, It's really important we continually remember this. The best way I can say this is these are people who would be evangelical, so to speak, in nature, who have come to a place where they're not walking in faith, but they've moved into a place similar to what you see here, who are now in this place where it's all about a legalistic, self-justifying, I'm doing the right thing, and the community around me is patting my back, and we're all saying that we're really good people, and yet in it are attitudes of judgment, and, and there's, atti- there's gossip, there's all the stuff that goes on that's not seen in evidence, because we don't do these things that are visibly wrong, but those things of the heart are. And he looks at them, and he says to them, enough's enough. It's time to choose. I've given you all the evidence you need. Listen to what he says. One commentator said, you know, he's kind of, how do you say, kind of courageous here. And I'm going, kind of? 
He's looking in the eyes of the leaders, the establishment, the police, the religious police of his day. He's looking them in the eyes and he's going, you guys are adulterous. You're wicked. That's gutsy. These are not the pictures of Jesus meek and mild, weak and wimpy. Listen to this, verse 38. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus speaks like a prophet. He is just before that called them a brood of vipers. That's gutsy. Now he's looking them in the eyes, and they're asking for credential papers, and he's saying, you guys, you're not getting any. Because you guys are wicked and adulterous. The very act of asking right here reveals the lack of trust and humility in your heart. Think about it. They had all kinds of signs that pointed to the reality of God. They were spiritual leaders of that day. They had known and studied and memorized God's Word. These were the best of the best of their group. These were the ones who went to the Harvard. Um, these were the ones who went to the best seminary divinity school you could go to. These were the ones who had gotten PhDs. These were the smart ones who everyone looked to and said, if they're going to know something about God's Word, it's them. Not only that, they had been immersed in the reality of God's work through the witness of their forefathers. These were people who have been generationally a part of this movement of God. These are people who have experienced... They were Pharisees. Pharisees started years back when they were a movement of God by the Holy Spirit, which meant pure ones who came in to purify the faith when they had been away in Babylon. And that group had grown. And after years and years and years, movements eventually become just denominational systems and institutions. And now things have become institutionalized. And here are these people who have had this long track record back to a move of God. And he's looking at him and he goes, you of all people have been created for this moment so that you of all people should be able to see with your eyes and believe with your heart. And they had experienced the authoritative, profound teaching of Jesus. When Jesus spoke, they knew it rang with authority. And I've said this before, the word authority comes from the word author. When they heard the teaching of God, even the common people goes, wow, this is unlike anything we've heard. This sounds like it's coming from the voice of God himself. And they had seen with their very eyes the miracles of Jesus that he had performed, and they had actually heard the testimony of people who have been healed, who said, guess what? I used to have a shriveled up hand, but look at it, it works great. And another person goes, I, I used to be blind, but well, wait a second, how do you do that? He said, I don't care, once I was blind, but now I see, that's all that matters. And yet, they stubbornly resisted and complained and criticized and rebelled because they did not want to believe. Jesus basically had not come the way they wanted And as I was preparing this and working through this, actually I'd written all this and then all of a sudden as I was preparing one other time, I just wrote these notes on the side. Jesus had not come the way they wanted him to come. Are we, are you willfully resisting, holding back, not, not giving, not offering yourself because this is not how you would expect God to come? I have to say, I've been in that experience in my life. I remember at a time, 20-some years ago, I, went in, I was in a place where I saw God doing these things, and I was so excited about the work that God was doing and what He wanted to do. And I have to say, at that point, I, I had a hard time understanding my ambition from His will. And as we were moving these things forward, I, I, God had to come in and say, Kevin, I so want to use you. I so want my will to be worked through you. I want you to understand what it means to, 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 to realize that you do have ambition. It's okay to look at that and understand it, but to not be ruled by that. And if you're not even conscious or aware, 
aware of it. I've got to get your attention on this. And so he brought me to a point where I felt like he was actually abandoning me. I went into a time of real suffering. I went into a time of depression. I remember getting in my car, driving around aimlessly, angry at God for what was happening in my life at that moment, and saying to him, God, I will never, ever tell anyone else about you if you treat him like this. Well, I'm standing here before you. Because God is so incredible and so loving and so great. He understands. He looks at us. He even saw my anger and he saw this. He goes, oh, he's having a little hissy fit. <laughs> I, I still have to do this. I have to separate your flesh from your spirit because your flesh is going to get in the way of what I'm planned to do through you. So as a result of this, Kevin, I love you so much that I'm going to let you go through this time of suffering. I'm not showing up the way you want me to, but the way you want me to is going to be worse than what you would experience if I didn't show up in this way. So I just ask you, do you want just Jesus who comes by His Holy Spirit and separates flesh and spirit? Or do you just want to you know, go through life in a comfortable way and I want Him to bless me and I want a nice home and I, I want my kids to grow up in a way that, you know, I just want all these nice things. And I want to go to a nice church where everyone's going kind of nice and we come in and we worship a little. I want the move of God and the move of God only comes when the, when the heart says, I don't care what you want to do, I will ask you to show up and when you show up, I am going to accept it. I am by faith going to move in it because I want to see the works of God. I know that's true of us. And God is going to do that. And so, I... I'm going to just conclude this with this last part here, okay? Jesus, in essence, says enough is enough. Decide. And so in a gutsy manner, he looks at him one more time. And he says, look at these words in verse 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. And both these statements are incredibly powerful. They have to come from a heart of a person whose soul knows how deeply loved he is by his father that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. And he boldly looks him in the eyes, these religious police authorities, and he says, no, you are not going to get my license or my papers of accreditation. And beyond that, I don't want to be in your shoes the day the divine authority holds court. People you actually despise will stand up and condemn you for what you truly are. You are heathens and pagans and godless. You are going to actually see, just like Jonah, when Jonah was in the belly of this great big fish and then was spewed out. It looked like he was done and dead, and he was spewed out. And the acid of the fish created his skin to be bleached and white. He walked in the town of Nineveh, and he told his story. And when he told his story, these people got it. They were people who understood the, the maritime ways and fishing and all that stuff. When he stood up and he said this, they understood that this person was to be dead, but now is alive. And when he said repent, they repented. 
And Jesus is saying, you think Jonah is big? I am going to come. And in a sense, he says this sign, which they don't truly understand yet at some point, but it will go off after his death and resurrection. He says, I will for three days be in the belly of this earth. It will look as if I'm as dead and as good as gone, but I will come out of this grave out of full life, and you will see someone far greater than Jonah who will come with a message that says you are going to be dead in your sins unless you turn and you open your heart so fully in repentance and humility to me. And when you do that, you will see the life of God flow through you. But not if you keep saying, I need another sign. He says, I will give you only one sign. And that sign is one that anybody in all history can look at. They can look back at the death and resurrection of Christ. And people have done it. They have been wise, legal people who have gone back and others who have looked at the evidence. And as they've looked at all the evidence, they come to the conclusion so often, and they do it in a heart that is pure, that this is God in flesh. And they bow their hearts to Him. And then he makes one other conclusion. And this one, this one stands in judgment of me and us, I think, as people in this culture more than any others. The Queen of the South, we'll end on this, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The Queen of the South was the Queen of Sheba who came and heard, was living way out in Arabia. Some believe truly that it was in Ethiopia, way down in kind of that northern part of Ethiopia where the Coptic church is today. And this queen had heard about this man named Solomon and the incredible wisdom that he had of God. This man was unlike any other man and was so taken by it that she actually came because she wanted to see if this is for real. And she, she came from such a great distance. She searched with her heart. She came all the way to the place of Jerusalem. She comes with Sir Solomon and she sees what she heard to be true. This is wisdom greater than anything she's ever seen. This has got to be the wisdom of God. And she pours out her treasures before his feet. And worships this God of this great wisdom. And here's what Jesus is saying. Here is the heart that wants me. Searches, hungers, humble, longs for. Like, like, like wise men searching for a star. Going all the way from the east. So you've got one from the west and one from the east. Who seek God. They will go from great distances to know and to find and experience. And when God prompts and God is there, they respond in obedience and faith. And faith allows them to see God in a way they've never seen Him. And He looks at these people and He says, Guess what? You're like adulterous, wanton, wandering hearts. You're like sheep that wander off. And the Father in heaven sees it. He's prepared you. He loves you. You are His people whom He has groomed for such a time as this. He actually left His throne in heaven, went all that way in humility down to earth in order to find you, to reveal Himself to you. He stands before you. He's the one who did the search. He came from the ends of the earth. He looks at you and you look at Him and go, I don't want you. Give me another sign. Dazzle me one more time. Let the parade go by. And I just go, church, people, individuals, uh, let us not be condemned by people who live far off, who seek after God, who don't have His Word at their disposal, who don't have the, the evidences of all the proofs and all the manifestation of the work and the history and all that God is. Don't allow for them someday to stand up and condemn us and say, oh yeah, oh, it's it's kind of nice, you know, I went to church and 
And don't let them stand and, and, and look at us and point a finger and go, I cannot believe it. All that was in your grasp. And you stood there and you said, just give me some more proof, God. And, and I think this last little part of empty places don't remain empty, verses 43 through 45. If I was to say it the way I think Jesus, just to paraphrase it in my own words, there's a lot to this. We could go into all of it. But he's basically saying to these guys, your life's of rules and regulations and living by the principles and, and living in such a way that you look so righteous, your life of do's and don'ts which you have built on yourself and the way that you approach God's word and all these things, he basically is saying it is not the absence of sin that produces holiness. That is not what sanctifies. Can I do this? Can I control my behavior this way? Can I, by out of fear, control other people's behavior so we all look really good? No. It is the presence of God so filling the heart, transforming it by love, that the law that now comes out of its heart is love. And that love moves in such a place that it speaks the truth out of love in all situations and moves into a place where there's integrity and honesty and, and this relationship that builds community. It is this that brings about change. But if God, like He did to the people there, comes, shows up, clears everything out, and you just live this life of trying to Abstain from those things which look to be bad. Watch out. You will be filled with something far worse. That makes sense? So the trouble with miracles is this. Here's the real trouble, folks. Anytime you see a revelation of God, the manifestation of His Spirit, anytime you hear the authoritative ring of God's Word in your heart, whether it be through a song or through a message or through His Word written, in Scripture, any time the revelation of God comes, you see it. You are now in a more responsible place. That's the trouble with miracles. Better not be around the revelation of God and fail to respond than to find yourself in it, yawning, to find yourself in it, Criticizing, complaining, to find yourself in it and saying, you know what? The worst, that's not of God. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. But would you just, with the moment here that we have, bow your head. God has his Holy Spirit. If you've never opened your heart to Jesus, all you have to say is, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Make me new. Give me this new heart. Fill me with your spirit. Some of you need to come to a place where you've been living in your flesh and you've been doing it for years and it's, you're living a lifeless life and you need to say, fill me, Holy Spirit, anew. Forgive me. Fill me with your presence. I want you to listen because God does speak to your heart. I want you to ask Jesus, what's my response to be here? What are you prompting me to move forward? In? Are you telling me to wait? It could be. Is there an area where you're asking me to believe and trust, where I've been hesitant? Have you come in a way different and I've just been fighting it, but now I'm going to open my heart to it? Let him speak to your heart. And I want to close with this prayer. I wrote it in my journal a few months back when I was reading these verses in my quiet time. And this is my prayer for you as well. Jesus, may I not... Be arrogantly stubborn, saying, give me a miracle or prove yourself to me or do it my way. When you, through your Holy Spirit, show up, whenever, wherever, however it may be, 
Help me to listen and believe so that I might see. Free me from my pride and release me from my fear. Reveal yourself through me. This is my heart cry. Amen.